All right, we've got just a few minutes left in the program, and I cannot resist this article by Joe Garofoli from the Chronicle from Black Friday, which starts as follows. True to his carefully cultivated Hollywood image, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger is casting his seven years in Sacramento as a box office smash as he headlines a media blitz through the final weeks of his term. From a glossy, four-minute career retrospective film shown at his wife's women's conference last month to a recent appearance on The Tonight Show, Schwarzenegger is in revisionist history mode and some of the history isn't recognizable, as 63% of Californians disprove of the way he's handled the job, according to a Public Policy Institute of California poll released this month. But in Schwarzenegger's rearview mirror, he is a post-partisan, levy-repairing, reform governor who is more than happy to talk up his green legacy while parked on the unthreatening confines of Jake Leno's couch, a place where he announced his political attentions during 2003's recall. Article notes that few dispute the governor's support and defense of California's groundbreaking climate law, AB 32, or other pro-environmental policies. But when the film, produced by Maria Shriver's Women Conference last month, included the line, Governor Schwarzenegger has been a champion of historic educational reforms. Eyeballs started rolling. Schwarzenegger's farewell tour hasn't included much chatter about California's sputtering economy, the $25 billion budget hole, or the skyrocketing costs of its public colleges. Article quotes A.G. Block, Associate Director of the UC Davis Institute of Governmental Affairs and former editor of the nonpartisan California Journal, and more importantly, a former Radio Parallax guest, Said A.G. Block, this endgame is different in the way Schwarzenegger's entire governorship has been different. It's predicated on his long showbiz career and his celebrity, which predates his swan dive into politics. All governors attempt to influence their legacies, but the only venue open to them is an extended interview with the San Francisco Chronicle or California Journal. Arnold commands the big stage because he's Arnold. Article notes that shortly before Election Day, Schwarzenegger made an annual appearance before a the gathering of top Northern California politicians and power brokers at Willie Brown's Breakfast Forum in San Francisco. The event was organized by San Francisco's former mayor and longtime assembly speaker. Schwarzenegger was both apologetic and combative there. He conceded before the largely Democratic audience that while he came into, po- into office promising to force California to live within our means, I was not successful to do all these things, living within our means, because I am not alone in running the state. If I was alone, the state... We'd be living within our means. But I have 120 legislators there in Sacramento also. Anyway, analysts note that his claims to be a reform governor might not uh, be able to be properly judged for years. He did support some reforms like the open primaries and an independent drawing of legislative districts. They're long-term plays. We'll have to see how those, uh, those turn out. A.G. Block notes he's taking credit as a reform governor for the heavy lifting done by other folks. He helped... But he doesn't seem to be the leader of those efforts, which the phrase reform governor seems to indicate. For his part, Willie Brown gave Schwarzenegger credit as a reformer. He said, I think he's done a marvelous job, quite frankly, on lots and lots of things. He was not as successful as he would have wanted to have been. He just doesn't have the long-term relationships you need to move people your way. You know, this sort of thing isn't confined uh, to governors or Republicans or Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ron Dellums got into the act also. I have to thank Peter for this article by Chip Johnson in the Chronicle from a couple weeks back, noting that with only six weeks remaining until Oakland swears in a new mayor-elect, Ron Dellums, a one-term mayor, 
was uh, out exploring the job market, looking for ways to parlay a 27-year career as a crusading liberal congressman into an annual income that will pay off the $252,000 in back taxes that he and his wife owe the the IRS. What's the article? Instead of just fading away, the quiet mayor's irrepressible ego got the better of him. This is the same ego that compels him to wear designer suits, ride in chauffeur-driven limousines, and encourage people to feel his abdominal muscles at every opportunity. Article notes that Dellums decided to move up the city's annual State of the City address, which is typically delivered in January, to November. And uh, a couple days before the scheduled speech, Ron Dellums canceled, submitted instead a video and a 63-page report listing his accomplishments. <laughs> the video tribute is a nine-minute series of the video tribute is a nine-minute series of testimonials from people extolling the greatness of Oakland's outgoing mayor. But the only thing missing is the mayor himself. Other than still photos in the intro, Dellums is not shown and doesn't utter, doesn't utter a single word. The 68-page report lists Midnight Basketball League and his participation in National Night Out as among his noteworthy achievements, which frankly we hope bears no resemblance to Man Love Thursdays, uh, which are found in Afghanistan. All right, let's see if we can't close with something that's not political in any capacity. All right, speaking of New Scientist magazine, here's a little item they had in the September 11th issue, which uh, we thought was pretty cool. The magazine usually publishes now a little item called One Minute With So-and-So. This, the man in question in the One Minute With, and that issue was Roger Mayer. He was a Navy acoustics engineer who apparently helped create the distinctive guitar sound that Jimi Hendrix used in tracks like Purple Haze. magazine asked Roger Mayer, what type of engineering was involved in what you did for the Royal Navy? He said the Navy was interested in detecting noise from enemy vessels and in the prevention of noise generation in our own ships and submarines. My work involved the mechanics of sound generation and the electronics used to measure it. When a steel-hulled sub is running silent, the sound of a drop spanner can be picked up and the sub's position located from up to 160 kilometers away. We could recognize the engine noise of each Russian sub and work out the way they were going. It really was like the stuff in The Hunt for Red October. How'd you get involved with guitarists? I grew up with Jeff Beck of the Yardbirds and Jimmy Page, also of the Yardbirds and later of Led Zeppelin, and we all used to go to the same pubs in Subiton and Epsom in the west of London. We listened to the same music, and I helped them out technically. I made some fuzz boxes for them around 1964, improving on some American ones that Jimmy Page and Keith Richards had used. magazine asked, Tell me about Octavia, the effects device you developed and Jimi Hendrix used. Well, it's quite complicated. It introduces a series of harmonics at twice the frequency you're playing, but in a way that complements your playing, doubling the frequency of the guitar sound, placing it an octave above. Analogy is in the way a mirror placed in front of another mirror creates a series of reflections that ricochet into infinity. I used analog mirror imaging circuits to create a similar acoustic mirror. The guitarist can vary the effect by, quote, viewing it, unquote, from oblique angles. And I'll have to confess, I'm not quite sure what he means by that. But final question was, how'd you get to work with Hendrix? Roger Mayer says, I met Jimmy at a club in 1967. When I showed him what Octavia could do, he loved it, wanted to use it on the solos of his next singles, Purple Haze and Fire, and many more tracks after that. That started a collaboration between us that continued until Jimmy died in 1970. 
All right, we haven't seen it yet, but there's apparently a new Martin Scorsese documentary about Fran Lebowitz out. A few years back, I attended a public uh, radio conference in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, along with Jeffrey Callison of Capital Public Radio. In uh, the, the auditorium where uh, Garrison Keillor applies his trade every week, there was an interview with Fran Lebowitz, which was, uh, <laughs> which was provocative, I guess you'd say. But writing about her in uh, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, James Lillix said, As far as the rest of the world is concerned, Fran Lebowitz stopped writing in 1981 to devote herself fully to smoking. Apparently after Andy Warhol hired her in the 1970s to write a column for Interview magazine, Lebowitz wrote two very funny collections of essays, Metropolitan Life and Social Studies, which, which wax acerbically of a New York social life. Commenting about her, her own forays into the spotlight, Fran said, um, I want people to know what I think. Mainly, I want them to do what I say. She admits that approach has not been very fruitful, saying, I've been trying to influence people my entire life. I've had very little success with that. To the degree that Fran advocates people being able to smoke when they want, where they want, uh, I guess to some degree that might be a good thing. All right, our thanks to our good friend Mr. Will Durst, America's foremost political comic. We hope you caught his local talk here on, uh, on the first of the month. We're going to have to get a first-hand report of what that was like from Mr. Durst himself. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time and possibly with a first-hand report from Central or South America. I don't know. We'll have to see.